Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. What are tone indicators? Where do they come from? How are they used? And a look at both the pre-internet history of tone indicators as well as the origin of the emoticon. And a question for the ages, what was the deal with the leg lamp in A Christmas Story? The explanation goes a little bit deeper than you might think. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times last week about the growing popularity of tone indicators in social media. So this was something that I was only aware of on Reddit, where it's common to put a forward slash and the letter S at the end of a comment to indicate that you're being sarcastic, just in case the people reading your comment miss that intent and then start arguing with you or report you or just think you're being a jerk. I learned, however, that there are way more tone indicators than just for sarcasm, and within certain corners of the internet, they're incredibly popular. There are indicators for rhetorical questions, inside jokes, sexual and non-sexual intent, hyperbole, and more. And they follow the same format as the sarcasm one that I noted before. At the end of your message, you type a forward slash followed by the letter or letters that people have agreed represent the tone. So maybe an RH for rhetorical question, a J for joking, a G for genuine, etc. In some ways, it makes perfect sense. You know, we all know that it can be tough to understand someone's tone and intent when communicating solely via text. And it can be even tougher to understand that if you're communicating with someone who you don't know closely, you know, whose textual communication style and context of their life you're not as familiar with. Emojis have been a big help, and I think that's one reason why they have continued to be so popular long after I thought they would be. I really thought they'd be a passing trend, and now they're just about an inextricable part of how we communicate. But for all the help emojis can do, there remains a lot of space for misinterpretation, even in those. For example, I long used the emoji that's kind of baring all of its teeth as just a big toothy grin, you know, a kind of goofy smile, like a first grader who hasn't quite figured out how to pose for smiling photos yet. Turns out, many people interpret that emoji as a kind of guilty, awkward, forced grin. So, whoops. Tone indicators are meant to do away with any hints of misinterpretation. Many of the major proponents of using tone indicators are people passionate about making the internet more accessible for all people. In this case, especially for people who are neurodivergent, that is, people who are autistic, dyslexic, or similar. And of course, many of the people using and pushing for the use of tone indicators are also neurodivergent themselves. Though there does get to be a bit of a debate about going too far, making too many indicators, and being totally patronizing to neurodivergent people. The other complication is that while tone indicators definitely help make your intent perfectly clear, it only works if you know what they are, and what each one means. Of course, the more people are familiar with and use them, the less of a problem that will be... But the piece of the article that really got me was how tone indicators have actually been used across various media throughout history. For example, Henry Denham, a 16th century British painter, invented a punctuation mark called a percantation point, which looked like a backwards question mark and was meant to indicate that a question was rhetorical. Like most of the other ones I will bring up, it never really stuck. 
Anglican clergyman and philosopher John Wilkins tried to make a punctuation mark to indicate irony in 1668 by turning the exclamation point upside down. Presumably, Mr. Wilkins was not familiar with Spanish punctuation. And French poet Alcanté de Brom tried making an irony marker again in the 19th century, and this time using the backwards question mark, kind of fusing the two ideas. It kept going with people proposing new punctuation marks for various intentions, usually sarcasm and irony. Two recent examples include in 2004, when writer Josh Greenman gave the upside-down exclamation point another go in Slate as a marker for sarcasm, and in 2001, when blogger Tara Laloya thought a little more out of the box and suggested the tilde could be used to denote sarcasm. And this one, I feel like, has stuck a little bit. More for irony, I guess, than sarcasm. Like, I've used it myself and seen it a lot, especially with younger millennials and Gen Z, where you kind of put tildes around a phrase to indicate that you know what you're saying is cliche or uncool, like you're self-aware or maybe just saying it ironically. But in terms of mainstream usage or acceptance into the canon of punctuation marks, nothing has ever really stuck. Emojis and emoticons are the closest we've gotten. And while we're on the topic, this article also gave a great history of the emoticon. Maybe you've heard parts of it before, quoting the New York Times. The smiley face emoticon, colon hyphen parenthesis, is generally credited to a 1982 message from Scott E. Fallman, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, after a misunderstanding that occurred when a colleague posting on the proto-internet service ARPANET made a dry joke about mercury contaminating an elevator shaft, end quote. And thanks to some great digital archaeology by Carnegie Mellon, you can read the whole conversation surrounding Fallman's suggestion of the symbol. I'll link to it in the show notes, but some highlights. So at first, people were debating using an asterisk or the percentage symbol to indicate jokes. And one person said that one of those should be for funny jokes and one for bad jokes, or you could combine the two for jokes so bad that they're funny. And then another said that the ampersand should be used because it's the funniest looking and sounding symbol on the keyboard. Yet another suggested the pound symbol, now known of course as the ubiquitous hashtag. They actually proposed it be between two parentheses, which may have been what got Fallman's brain cogs turning. Here's what the hash symbol between a pair of parentheses person said by explanation, quote, It looks like two lips with teeth showing between them. This is the expected result if someone actually laughs their head off. An obvious abbreviation of this sequence would be the hash character itself, which can also be read as the sharp character and suggests a quality which may be lacking in those too obtuse to appreciate the joke. End quote. And then Fallman came in with his suggestion, the colon, hyphen, and single parenthesis, either a closing one as a smile to indicate a joke, or an opening one as a frowning face to indicate not joking. Personally, I have never been a huge fan of emoticons with noses, but I guess now we know that that was the original way to do it. It's also fun that Fallman had to explain to people how it looked like a face if you turned your head sideways. It's just wild to think about a time when it wasn't an immediately recognizable symbol, exactly. And as the conversation on the board continued, two things happened. One, People very quickly adapted usage for different mouths for the emoticon, including the capital I or vertical line for a neutral, non-joke, as well as the lowercase o for a surprised or worried face. 
And the second thing that happened was, like all message boards, they devolved into a debate about whether joke indicators were even necessary, and if they were, were there better solutions, like segmenting out a joke's specific board. Watching it all play out just reminded me how so many, if not all, online trends that aim to solve something can seem too niche or not quite perfect at first. And some of them truly are, or are too imperfect, but others maintain, grow, and survive as a dominant behavior. So, yeah, tone indicators are primarily coming from one niche part of the internet right now, and some incarnations or applications of the concept are imperfect right now, and maybe it even seems like the infighting over them among the main users will prevent them from ever gaining ground. But all of that was a little bit true with the formation of the emoticon as well. And look where we are now. Christmas Story, the 1983 film about a kid who desperately wants a Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle for Christmas, and the surrounding events of his and his family's life in the Midwestern's 1930s. If you live in the United States, it's impossible to turn on the TV in December and not encounter a Christmas Story airing on some channel nearly every day. So many parts of it are familiar to folks, even if you haven't watched it in years or never actually seen it. The pink bunny suits, you'll shoot your eye out. The terror of getting your tongue stuck to a lamppost, and of course, the leg lamp. Ralphie's dad wins the leg lamp in a newspaper contest and is beyond excited to display it right in the front window so the whole neighborhood will know he won, much to the dismay of his wife. But why was he so excited about this leg lamp? Was this a common thing in the 1930s? A sign of wealth or success, like pineapples in the 18th century? Well, thanks to a new video from amateur amusement park historian Midway to Main Street on YouTube, we finally have some answers. First, the movie A Christmas Story is an adaptation of Gene Shepard's semi-autobiographical, semi-fictional book of short stories, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. Shepard was actually the narrator of the film and had a brief cameo while waiting in line to see Santa at the department store. So if you want a bit more background on this detail or just can't get enough of Ralphie and his family, check out Shepard's book. But anyways, so if you pay attention to the dialogue in the movie, which, to be honest, I never have that closely, you learn that the dad has a habit of entering puzzle contests that newspapers frequently ran in the 30s to try to drum up sales. The one he enters at the start of the film had a grand prize of $50,000. He didn't win. Instead, he won a runner-up prize, the leg lamp. But why a leg lamp? Well, it turns out the stockinged leg was a logo for a soda company called Nehi, spelled N-E-H-I, who had sponsored the newspaper contest that he entered. Midway to Main Street compares it to if Coca-Cola sponsored a contest in USA Today and the runners-up got big polar bear stuffed animals. But okay, so that all makes a bit more sense, but why was the Nehi Soda Company's logo a disembodied leg in a stocking and high heel? Well, being spelled in the non-obvious way, Nehi, N-E-H-I, the company, had to do a little subliminal messaging and brand awareness to instruct people on the proper Nehi pronunciation, thus featuring a logo of a leg ending at knee height. 
Originally, it was of a seated woman's legs with her skirt short enough to show stockings going up to her knees, like knee-high stockings. Over time, it evolved into a single disembodied leg, usually though on bottle caps and labels without any stockings on it. The stockings were added later as an homage to Nehi's custom patented glass bottles, which had a sort of crosshatch design on the top, a design which was commonly referred to as their silk stocking design. Now as for the lamp, that was a complete fabrication of Gene Shepard's. While the logo was totally real and merchandise of the lamp exists now, I have a nightlight version that I won in a white elephant a few years ago, the leg lamp in reality never existed outside of a Christmas story. And just one more little wrinkle for you, the company that made Nehi Soda made several different lines of sodas and also changed their name a lot over the years, both before and after being the Nehi Corporation in the late 20s and early 30s. In the 1950s, they finally changed the company name to one that would stick, RC Cola. Which, if you live in the U.S., you are probably quite familiar with as a very popular soda and soda company to this day, although technically they were bought by Dr. Pepper Snapple in 2008. But still, that is how RC Cola is responsible for the leg lamp in A Christmas Story. And while I'm talking about the leg lamp, I've gotta plug Josh Sunkist real quick. So, Josh is a guy who lost his leg to cancer when he was a kid, and since has gone on to be a Paralympian skier and a member of the U.S. amputee soccer team, not to mention a motivational speaker, young adult author, stand-up comedian, and OG YouTuber, so dude's doing alright. He's gone viral for a number of reasons over the years. One of my favorites is how he found his soulmate, aka another guy who lost the opposite leg and has the same shoe size as him. So every now and then they meet up and exchange shoes because, you know, they both still have to buy pairs of shoes even though they don't need both of them. But the main reason he often goes viral is for his super creative Halloween costumes. Over the years, he's been the gingerbread man from Shrek who lost part of his leg, Lumiere from The Beauty and the Beast, the genie from Aladdin, the IHOP sign, a foosball player. But one year, he was the leg lamp from A Christmas Story. It was a fantastic Halloween costume. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see a summary of all of his Halloween costumes. And as Josh says, when life gives you lemons, make awesome Halloween costumes. A sentiment I think we can all agree on. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Cocky.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go get into an extended message board debate about the merits of tone indicators in audio-only communication. Slash S. I hope you are having a great week, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>